called linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. I guess I should point out, by the way, that these uh, trialogue conversations build on one another, so in a minute here, when you hear Ralph Abraham mention a 12 Waddington Runnel jumper, <laughs> well, if you didn't hear the previous podcast, then you missed their talk about what was uh, once a rather esoteric-sounding concept to me, but uh, now actually seems to be making some sense, uh, or at least so I've led myself to believe. Actually, I think it might be worth your time to go back and listen to the previous podcast before picking up here. I just did that myself, and I, I found that on further listening, some really interesting new ideas are beginning to form in ways that I hadn't thought of before. So, just as a reminder, I'm going to play a, a short bit by Terrence McKenna from the last podcast, and uh, it's one I like to call the Cataracts of Chaos. Do you remember it? We then become the atoms of the world soul, and our channel to it is by closing our eyes and obliterating our immediate personalized space-time locus and falling into the imagination, which is running like a river through all of us uh, endlessly, driven by the you know, the hydraulic momentum of the cataracts of chaos which usher into the creativity of the imagination. I mean, these river metaphors are, are just endlessly applicable to this. Well, how's that for an off-the-cuff poetic riff? Cataracts of chaos. Don't you just love that imagery? And for... Some more of the same, let's rejoin this discussion with a great McKenna quote about the ego. The ego is basically paranoia institutionalized, I think. So I guess it's a package deal. You've got the dominator, you've got the patriarchal, you've got the ego, as in our culture we see primarily as a male disease like testosterone poisoning. And well, I don't see it as a male disease. I think everybody in this room has a far stronger ego than they need. And in the society, uh, I, I think the great thing that Rianne Eisler did for this discussion was degenderize the terminology so that it, instead of talking about patriarchy and all this, what we should be talking about is dominator versus partnership. Yes. And, and but the fact is we have very little personal or historical experience with dominator matriarchal societies. Nevertheless, I agree with you, it's a good service she has done, and uh, I'll, I'll try to follow, um, why not? <clears throat> but uh, in this package deal, I mean, basically, we're faced with this problem, how to get back to the other paradigm. So uh, one suggestion, I think, I'm interpreting what you said as um, I shouldn't do that. It's sort of a, it's not exactly a missionary appeal for psychedelic usage, but since ego is an aspect of the problem, and this ego problem had arose not only by the um, through the suppression 
of psychedelic usage in ritual, but even through the gradually increasing interval between the festivals, which would be something like the parameter of the cooling off of the universe out of which uh, crystallizes different, through phase transition, different material forms. And then the, uh, the dominator society, in short, had sort of crystallized out through the gradual increase of the interval between rituals. Is that? That's right. I mean, this is part of it, definitely. The, the phonetic alphabet is in there, too, playing a further abstracting role from process and giving permission for all kinds of uh, curious, disensouling uh, maneuvers on the part of the dominator ego. Well, we still have mathematics and music. Yes, but so few had them. A few did. Well, we tuned up. And those few who did were the creative engines of those societies. They kept the connection to the muse. Well, are we supposed to... Do you think that if the Eleusinian mysteries could be reinstituted, which I guess is ridiculous because it's part of a package, now lost in wholeness, <laughs> right? Well, I think part this is the psychedelic rebirth is an effort to find our way back to something like that. I mean, it, we don't have to advocate mass psychedelic conversion. The sly thing to do is to call attention to the words of someone who's dead, to wit, Arthur Kessler, great uh, anti-communist freedom fighter and scientific intellectual, and in a book called... Uh, the ghost in the machine, his final conclusion is that there has to be mass pharmacological intervention to... Uh, he wants a drug that destroys territoriality. He thinks that, well, this is just a, a unpsychedelic analysis of the same problem. I mean, the dissolving of boundaries is certainly the, an, an anti-territoriality drug. So uh, we are not the first nor the most eminent to suggest this kind of re-engineering of the human animal. Our reflexes and our, our mental set is highly and well adapted to the stoning to death of woolly mastodons. But since we have, we so rarely do that anymore, uh, you know, we need to retool for living in peace and universal brotherhood. Well, do you think that some of our existing uh, national holidays or something could be changed or that a mythological mutation could be introduced which would go in this direction? For example, in Switzerland, they recently invented Fasching, or I think Fasnacht, they call it there. They had no ritual at all, barely Christmas, and there was uh, a suffering of enormous boredom among people there. It was said that there was no known way to make a new friend in Switzerland. I don't know how it started, but just a few years ago, recently, they started this uh, Fasnacht, which is in February, three days of day and night alcoholic revelry <laughs> around the fantastic reenactment of a medieval drama, which involves people marching in the streets in parades led by musicians who practice a medieval song on medieval instruments all year long just for this three-day ceremony. And now it is said that uh, during Fasnacht you can make a new friend. Well, it's a, it's a new tradition. Uh, 
something along that line that I've advocated, some, sometimes facetiously, sometimes seriously, is that a, a calendrical reform would be a wonderful thing, and I have just the calendar all worked <laughs> out. Uh, and I won't lay it all out here tonight, but the basic notion is that uh, it's a lunar calendar of 13 lunar cycles, so it has 384 days. Consequently, it precesses 19 days against the solar year. Well, this would have the effect of taking the great yearly events of the calendar and through the lifetime of a person they would slowly move through the seasons so that for instance uh, if we kept Christmas on December 25th uh, as and you as a child celebrated Christmas in winter as a, as a teenager you would celebrate it in spring and as a young adult, you would celebrate it in high summer, and as an older person, it would occur in autumn, and then when you were truly old, Christmas would have returned again and occur in winter. And the notion here is to overcome this really, really bad idea, in my opinion, it's very much a dominator idea, that the calendar should be anchored rigidly at the equinoctial and solsticeal points, that sends the message that there is stability. It's an effort to deny man's mortality, this solar calendar. In, it, it's reinforcing a false notion of permanence. And what we actually want is a calendar that says to us, all is flow, all is flux, all relationships are in motion, to everything else, a truer picture of the world. Now you see this may seem trivial and like this is why eggheads are harmless, that this guy would bother to tell us something like this. But think about it, the calendar is the largest frame there is in which all other contexts are somehow subsets. So if we yield the structure of the calendar to the dominators and let them tell us what kind of calendar we shall have, then we shall all live within the context of their framework. I think changing the calendar is uh, an extremely interesting and uh, uh, idea because I think it would have tremendous consequences and it would not be opposed by the dominators until it was too late because they would regard it as some kind of a crank thing and because they would not realize that what you were twiddling with were the dials of the whole civilization's image of time and change and itself. So that's one thing that could Thank be you. done. It's a bit technical, but I think we've got to admit that is a major runnel jumper. Fact, I would say that is a 12 Waddington runnel jumper. And uh, so that suggests to me that it's uh, time for a little play, a little mathematical play, and the construction of a chaos theoretic model for the imagination explaining why runnel jumping is important and giving a map as to how to do it. Well, you're right, it's runnel jumping. Two th the year 2000 provides a built-in opportunity to, to switch the train to a new track because 
at these millenarial moments, there's a certain uncertainty about how to proceed in the mass mind. And if you just jumped up onto the stage and said, this is it, folks, you might be able to uh, uh, pull it off. Well, maybe if it was too difficult, one could be satisfied to introduce a wandering festival, which, if indeed it were attractive, as attractors are supposed to be, would eventually win out in a gradual so solar... That's a great idea. You mean yeah. So it would be like one full moon later every year. Yeah, but it will become the New Year's festival in time because of the ritual that's designed for it. That's a great idea. Something like Mardi Gras. Something yeah. like a wandering Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is in the right idea, right? You, it's, in the, it's the right spirit. You break the trade. I mean, it's a chaos festival. We right? could call it the... Destroy the, all order. The day of the cosmic giggle. Yeah. Well, it's Runnel Jump Day. Runnel Jump Day. Yeah. Well, perhaps we should get some Sheldrakean uh, feedback. Yes. Well, the, the, the first thing that occurs to me just on a few technical details. This, this calendar that's processes these lunar way around the year so the major festivals move around and therefore it breaks the dominating mold is already in place in the world. It's the calendar of the Islamic world. That's right. And um, the, the Ramadan, the feast of Ramadan, the fasting month, and the feast at the end of it shifts processes around the year so that people who had Ramadan in winter then have it in the dry season or the monsoon in the course of their lives. But it does seem to me that it's a, not exactly a total confirmation of your theory. But Where is the well, this deeply, the deeply feminist society of the Ayatollah Well, that is it precisely a trend in 84 day, 13 months. I don't know if it's 12 or 13 months, but it's certainly a lunar calendar. And it certainly processes around. Well, I know in ancient Israel there were 384 day calendars, but your point is certainly uh, unwelcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm still baffled about chaos, you see, because as soon as. Uh, the negative aspects of chaos everyone is, disapproves of. I mean, even Merlin knows that they're meant to be disapproved of, because having ticked out his food from the bowl, he then points and says, Mess! The thing is that we've had the meaning of chaos, of course, shifts, as most things do, but this one's shifted a lot this evening, and I'm still trying to keep up with it. <laughs> we start off with chaos not being with any negative connotation, but just the yawning void. In fact, as Ralph explained, something like the sky. Then it, it's the great womb, perhaps, or the source of all things, or whatever. It's a diff it then gets turned into this uh, Tiamat, who is slain. Or, actually, in, in the um, first chapter of the book of Genesis, then it's the, it's the deep. And um, the model of creation there, the spirit moved on the face of the waters, sounds to me like a wave theory of creation, and wind on water sets up waves. But we, that's another version of the chaos theory, and I think it's a more interesting one than the Marduk slaying the monster, because there we have the wind moving on the face of the waters. 
and chaos there is the deep. It's the, the abyssal void from which all things can come forth. It's the primary cosmic womb. Anyway, so we've heard about that, the sky. Then we hear the negative connotations. Um, and one of the things that's clear is that chaos is feminine. And creation out of chaos is like the creation out of the womb, coming out of darkness. So one of the metaphors that Terence used of the imagination is dipping down nets into the ocean of the deep and pulling up coelacanths or whatever of uh, the imagination. Well, he used well, that image, which would correspond to the kind of imagery used by the Jungians about the unconscious and bubbling up from below. And it would also fit with the idea of um, creativity welling up from the earth and the creation of the earth bringing forth from within the darkness. Again, a, a model that's used in, in Genesis the biblical account of creation doesn't have God creating animals and plants. It has God starting off by saying, let the earth bring forth grass and, and herbs and trees. And the earth then brings them forth. The earth brings them forth from herself and presumably from the darkness uh, of the centre of the earth. Anyway, that's one model. The chaos is a kind of feminine uh, womb or all-containing potentiality from which things come forth and you dredge them up. But then you also use the metaphor of the imagination descending from above, which is a traditional Platonic or Neoplatonic imagery of creativity coming down from above and becoming, becoming more and more manifest through a series of stages. Um, so that's a top-down model of creativity, and the chaos one's a bottom-up model of creativity. The interesting thing is that most theories of creativity I've come across um, oscillate unstably between those two models. Uh, usually try to resolve the conflict by saying, well, it must be a mixture of both. Uh, but this top-down and bottom-up creativity model occur in innumerable <coughs> contexts. And I was fascinated that both of them emerged in your talk this evening. Um, but the, in the realm of theology, they emerge uh, in what's called descending and ascending Christology. In the first three Gospels in the New Testament, the model is that Jesus Christ is born as a, as a child. He's initiated by John the Baptist. A new spiritual illumination occurs at the time of his baptism. And he undergoes a development and becomes God. So it's a process of, of a bottom-up developmental process of a man becoming God. But then in St. John's Gospel, you've got the opposite model, which is the Platonic model, of the world, the world becoming flesh, and you have the idea of God becoming man, uh, the, the top-down model of creativity. And it's interesting that they've coexisted in Christian theology ever since the New Testament, in a kind of tension where at one time people emphasize one, and at other times they emphasize the other. Um, and I think in most discussions of creativity, one gets into this unstable oscillation. Ralph has it too, of course, because chaos, on the one hand, is this chaotic, indeterminate process that in some sense uh, liberates us from um, some of the older models of control and mechanistic determinism and so on. But on the other hand, he also wants the top-down thing, because he wants models or possibly even the generation of chaos to come from some simple mathematical principles, which are definitely a top-down model. And so we've got the attempt to, we've still got the attempt to tame chaos by modeling it. Um, 
from the top down, and mathematical modeling of chaos, uh, if not exactly in the dominator mode, uh, is still, I think, within the St. George and the Dragon archetype. You know, it is, it's the Tiamat, it's St. George slaying the dragon. Actually, St. George doesn't slay the dragon. He pierces the dragon and tames it and leads it captive into the city. But the, the dragon in that myth is obviously another form of the monster and chaos. Anyway, I was interested to see how, what we thought about this unstable um, notion of creativity and this unstable notion of imagination, which has some of it being dredged up from below and the rest coming down from above. And how would you understand these uh, metaphors? Are they just alternative things that one switches from one track to the other? Are they different pictures of the same process, or are they complementary processes? No, I think they're, they're different pictures of the same process. I mean, in the afternoon session, there was the image of the Star of David as the interpenetration of the two triangles. I think it's the notion of as above, so below. You don't understand it unless you're somehow able to hold both images simultaneously. This is a general idea, I think, that in talking about these kinds of things, you, you can't force closure. You have to be able to... Uh, it is alchemical thinking, because the things that are being described are, are multidimensional objects in a way that they can sustain seemingly contradictory uh, descriptions. I, it's not double talk, or at least if it is, it's sincere double talk. Uh, it's just that these things are uh, compound, complex concepts that seem to have to have this overlay to be correctly appreciated. As above, so below. That's good. That disposes of the problem. We had the... Uh, <laughs> The painting of the um, the Earth God. What what is her name? The Catholic. Um, the Virgin of Guadalupe. Of Guadalupe. Yes. So uh, R R Rupert took me into the Church of Holy Cross in Santa Cruz, where I'd never gone, and showed that there was a shrine of uh, Our Lady of the Virgin of Guadalupe there as a a black goddess, and uh, so. Um, Earth, Earth Mother figure, right? But she's wearing a dress or cloth with stars printed all over it. Well, in the uh, the history of the chaos concept, as I gave it, you you have a syncretism of the Hesiodic uh, chaos, the Milky Way, which is celestial, with the Tiamat concept carrying our current meaning of chaos as part of its idea which is uh, Tiamat was a, a water goddess and was symbolized as a dragon or a sea serpent in Babylon. And there are numerous pictures in uh, Babylonian art of this sea serpent with a halter, Marduk standing on its back, holding the reins, driving it along. <laughs> Marduk has conquered this sea serpent. So the... Um, for some reason, the history of mythology at this point required in the syncretism that um, a celestial figure should be overlain on a thonic one, an earth figure. 
and it happens. I mean, there are so many gods and goddesses in the pantheon, and frequently they are different aspects of the same thing. Here, I think it's good uh, to have this Easter basket figure that the the sky, uh, as a hemisphere, as a visible hemisphere, comes to an end on the horizon, and then the earth begins, whether it's flat or hemispherical or whatever. And uh, the connection between the sky and the earth is actually through the Milky Way, which is the royal road of the gods, through which um, um, Orpheus, for example, goes to the underworld to look for Eurydice or whoever, goes down the Milky Way to the ba- and then disappears underneath and is supposed to come up in this same way. So the duality, I think, between the sky and the earth and the actual uh, connection between where this basket, where the handle of the basket connects to the woven part is actually where the mathematical model meets the unconscious of the guy in mind, where the mathematical version of chaos meets the chaos of everyday life, where if there is going to be um, erotic or synergetic relationship between the earth and sky versions of chaos, including creativity and the imagination, it is going to take place at the joint where the handle attaches to the basket. Yes, I wanted to say, Ralph, that reminded me that it was good that you mentioned Eleusis. And I agree with Ralph that this was a great turning point and a cultural episode not frequently enough discussed, that this thousands and thousands of years of this goddess-worshipping, orgiastic, psychedelic religion finally is confined to uh, a few shrines in Greece and Crete, and then ultimately a few shrines only in Greece until the time of Alaric the Visigoth, who uh, is the clown who finally did it under. And so that this boundary-dissolving relationship to the vegetable Gaian mind is even in our tradition only about uh, 1,700 years in the past. But it's in that 1,700 years in the absence of a dialogue with the, with the Gaian expression of chaos that we have elaborated these successively more and more deadly cultural forms just beginning with, uh, you know, the phonetic alphabet and moving on to movable type. And each one of these things has had tremendous negative consequences on our self-image and entangled us deeper and deeper in a kind of uh, Faustian pact with the physical world. And and it's that blindness that uh, has led us to... uh, the present situation. So it's in the absence of this boundary-dissolving ecstasis in replacing that with the machinations and plottings of the ego leads very, very quickly into a cultural cul-de-sac from which we are now gathered here to debate whether there is or is not any escape. So it's very powerful. This was the wrong turning. And studying that wrong turning and what was betrayed and what came out on top and what was suppressed, we see that by running the film backwards, we could perhaps in some sense restore that previous situation. 
and and that involves uh, you know opening our lives to chaos in whatever way becoming much more a part of the will of the world soul than uh, and you know recapturing that Greek sense of fate that has been replaced in our minds by this Faustian sense that is an illusion of control and dominance. Uh, so that was all I wanted to say about that. Shall we? That's take a good questions? place to stop. I think this phase and uh, <coughs> a, a good time for some audience participation. I know there is a fatigue factor at this time. Jerry, I like. Um, it's nice to get the validation of the feminine principle emerging. So I just wanted to say that. But um, what would happen if the feminine principle emerged and became the dominant principle? Isn't <laughs> this domination? No, because it isn't really the feminine. See, that style of talking has to be overcome because. It's really the difference between <coughs> dominator and partnership. Could you explain that more then? Okay. Um, partnership is where there everybody has an appropriate role which they carry out and it's sort of implicit and everybody is able to occupy many of these roles. So roles aren't fixed <coughs> habits. They're not scripted. And... Uh, uh, the dominator style is simply the style of ego. It involves a dominant male, territoriality, uh, pecking orders, uh, fixed rules of behavior and presentation, all of this sort of thing. Uh, what would happen if we had a partnership society is that we would manage the planet for the good of the group which is certainly not what is happening now now the dominant metaphor including even the very popular democracy metaphor or meme is basically uh, every man for himself and uh, I think there's going to have it's going to have to be a kind of socialist democracy. We were just saying before we came in here that recent studies of world economies show that the most successful world economies are capitalist economies strongly managed by quasi-socialist regimes, i.e. Japan and West Germany are doing much better than the open-ended laissez-faire style of capitalism that's practiced here. My fantasy of what a partnership society would be like is everybody would behave appropriately, you know, and there would be this zen-like smoothness to all interaction. And I've been on the edge of partnership societies in the Amazon where I really felt that I could see this happening. And I have certainly been in psychedelic sessions where in the Amazon where people who were one generation removed from that kind of partnership tribalism recovered it during the ceremony 
and were able to act out uh, the way of the ancestors. Uh, it's terrible, you know, the, the most horrific thing that is put against the, the women followers of Dionysius was that they devoured their children at the height of their frenzy. I mean, this is a human crime for which, so far as I know, there is not even a name in English. I mean, it, it must be... Uh, I can't even create it. Uh, but uh, this is what we are doing. This is what we as a society are guilty of, a crime previous generations couldn't even conceive of. It's the absolute apotheosis of dominator fury. And that's why, you know, you want to talk about real life stuff and ecological crisis. Uh, in the midst of the effort to save the rainforests, which as we all know are terribly damaged and endangered, uh, the dominator mentality has conceived a plan to aerially drop herbicide onto the Amazon in order to wipe out coca plants. So this is like, you know, you cannot trust the dominator style not to go psychotic here at the end. I mean, they have, may have to surround the place and lay siege to it. And the question is, who are they? Who is it who has the power to pry the dead fingers of the dominator culture from the instrumentality of power? Uh, this, is, this is why the chaos which is rising in the world is, it is literally the Gaian fury. It is a moment of opportunity. Everyone should understand this, that chaos provides opportunity for commandos of the new persuasion to rush forward and jam vital machinery of the dominator uh, metaphor. So the key, uh, the key to a correct political stance in a situation of chaos is to be alert to opportunity because it will come. The whole thing is advanced incrementally by people who are always aware of the possibility that the next moment will be the one in which to take a, a step forward. Surrender to the Gaian mind, to the, to the intuition of the forward cascade into chaos, but never surrender to, uh, to the dominator metaphor because it will eventually, it's death. I mean, it's death, it's unhappiness, it's neurosis, it's sexual impotence, it's fear of other people, it's xenophobia, it's all these things. It, it's psychosis on a, on a uh, mass cultural scale. We have been so long victimized by it that we're like, you know, well, no, that's almost too harsh, but... Yeah, well... What I was going to say was the kind of culture that we, are, that we inherit from the late Roman uh, emergence of Christian dominance is the kind of culture that I imagine would come into existence if the Third Reich had lasted a thousand years. In other words, you know, the rough edges get smoothed off, but the, the main human suppressing thrust is kept... Uh, fully in place and, and uh, now 
it's no longer a personal or cultural matter that we are so deeply diseased by this kind of neuro neurotic uh, conditioning because the planet itself is at stake. The arsenals that have been piled up, the industrial processes that have been set in motion, uh, there has to be, uh, you know, an over uh, a phase transition. The cusp must be just ahead or else uh, we will just script ourselves out of existence. I might uh, interject at this point that we had had great teaching on some of these points from Rian Eisler's book, The Chalice and the Blade. Mm -hmm. Not only on the characteristics, the potential uh, characteristics of a partnership society and the history of the dominator society, but also on the role of chaos and social transformation. And this book, if you want to just eyeball it, they do have it here in the bookstore. Ralph, I was just curious if you or, or if Rupert uh, are familiar with the ideas of uh, Hans Moravik, uh, um, who's an AI and robotics specialist, that has a new book where he's, he claims that, uh, talk about a fall into imagination, that we will, the human beings will, uh, within 50 years be downloading their brains into robotic vehicles, into uh, computer minds. And um, he says that not only is this a response that we, we only response we'll be able to take in, in, in the face of technological disaster, but also uh, or some dramatic change in our, in our environment, but also as a technological imperative. Anyway, he claims that this is what we're facing. I'm not familiar with him myself. I have heard this kind of future fantasy uh, before. It's sort of uh, it's a far-fetched alternative to um, Terence's idea that the leap into space is an imperative for our future. And uh, personally, I'm not interested in this kind of future fantasy. I think that. Uh, it would be nice if some alternative such as this, maybe the arrival of the aliens in the spacecraft, one parked over each large city and so on. If there is such a miraculous resolution of our problems, that's fine, then we don't have to worry about it. But what is uh, our challenge at this time, I think, is to try to solve the problem within the existing context. That's the, that's the real challenge. Although I'm not as pessimistic as Ralph, I think there could be that there is potentially what I call a forward escape into technology. I mean, downloading our brains into computers is a, a absolutely 16th century image of it. But if you, you know, possibly, well, this question of whether there can be consciousness without an object. Uh, is interesting and it, and it is possible that there are virtual realities into which we may migrate you know one trend that's been noticed in cultural evolution is what's called uh, neoteny the that the, the uh, retention of adolescent characteristics in the adult form and we all uh, have this. Our hairlessness is an infantile hairlessness. And uh, many other aspects of us are preservation of infantile form. 
uh, and on the microcosmic scale of human history, each generation views the generation which it spawns as more childish, more childlike. And it's possible to imagine that, uh, especially if the notion of the sanctity of life tears loose and manages to inculcate itself deeply into jurisprudence, it's possible to imagine gigantic electronic hives in which uh, uh, very nearly fetal human beings by the billions are connected into a self-sustaining virtual reality and that it's a tremendous privilege to get your papers to vacation in 3D and that 3D becomes a, a kind of exotic resort destination and that uh, most people spend their lives in sorts of levitowns of the imagination as uh, larval forms integrated into machinery. A pleasant vision, but... Uh, Terence, I think we're reaching the cusp. I think so, yes. Well, here's... Um, in terms of uh, dissolving eco boundaries, um, with the work in therapy today, there's a lot of controversy about um, building uh, a solid ego before one can transcend an ego, versus just transcending it before you have integrated yourself. And I was wondering if you speak to that in relation to what you believe needs to happen. Well, I don't really feel the force of that. Um, I think maybe we need to retool the terminology. I'm not suggesting that people should be uh, fearful, meek, and self-effacing, which is sort of what I imagine a person who might be diagnosed as having a weakened ego to be. I would say they have a self-esteem problem and that the self and the ego can be clearly distinguished here. Uh, there may be individual cases where people are socially dysfunctional because they can't assert themselves, but by and large the overwhelming tendency is in the, uh, the other direction. Uh, one thing on this dissolution, I would say that the current state of the uh, electronic global communications event goes a long way to uh, transcending all these boundaries. They disappear and sort of down from dissolving territories yeah. and boundaries and differentials and creating a, recreating a McLuhan's tribal village. Well, a lot of people disagree with me. Maybe Ralph does. I don't know. But I, I think of the whole cybernetic thing as a feminization. People as sometimes women find, di are disturbed by this because they tend to think of machines as cold and emotionally neutral and all that. But the actual effect is what you're talking about. This dissolving of boundaries, the free movement of information, a new fluidity, a new accessibility, new dimensions of freedom that are definitely promotional of chaos. It's got good run Runnel potential. Well, why don't we turn now to the films and to uh, close off the live part of the broadcast and uh, and move on. Is that all right with everybody? Okay, thank you very much.
So, what do you think about Terence's idea of changing the calendar? How do we go about making that happen, do you think? You know, I also uh, I like his idea for a 384-day year. What do you all think about that? And, uh, also, what about Ralph's idea of a wandering festival? I just love all those ideas myself. The question, of course, still remains. How do those of us who resonate with some of those ideas begin to implement them? Well, you've got me on that one. But if any of you get uh, something started along those lines, please let me know by emailing the information to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com and I'll do what I can to help promote your activities and get the word out a little bit. I also uh, like Terence's description of what he thought a partnership society would look like. I don't know about you, but it sure sounded a lot like the Burning Man experience to me. At least that's how I interpreted his uh, remark that in a perfect partnership society, quote, everyone would behave appropriately. <laughs> well, that's exactly the way I see life on the playa at Burning Man. Maybe it uh, looks out of control if you've never been there, but believe me, all of us, uh, <laughs> all of us freaks out there sure do think we're behaving appropriately, which, uh, of course, includes having a, a lot of pretty outrageous fun, but without getting in somebody else's space, if you know what I mean. And didn't you just love it uh, just now when McKenna got a little subversive when he said, Everyone should understand this, that chaos provides opportunity for commandos of the new persuasion to rush forward and jam vital machinery of the dominator metaphor. <laughs> what a bard he was, a real poet. Commandos of the new persuasion. Now there's an outfit that uh, I'd sure like to join. And you've uh, really got to admire Ralph and Rupert, whose ideas are equally captivating. But uh, you've just got to admire them for having the courage to share the stage with a wordsmith like Terence McKenna. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm really enjoying listening to these trialogues. And I guess, actually, if my email is any indication, you're all enjoying them, too. For example, uh, Derek wrote to say that perhaps the combined energy of Ralph, Rupert, and Terence may uh, even add a new dimension to their individual presentations that may not have come out if they'd just uh, each given standalone talks instead of using the trialogue method. That's, uh, that's a really good point, Derek. I, I hadn't thought about that myself before, but now that you mention it, uh, I definitely agree. There's, there's just something about their banter and having to stay on their toes, so to speak, that seems to make these conversations stand out as much as they do. And uh, Derek also pointed out a couple of his other favorite podcasts, which are, uh, one goes by the name Unwelcome Guests, and the other is uh, Princeton's University Channel podcast. I haven't had a chance to check them out yet myself, but since they come from a fellow psychedelic saloner, I'm sure they probably will be of interest to many of us. Well, I guess I better wrap this up for now and start working on the next podcast. First, uh, <laughs> I've got to decide whose talk to use for the next program. 
I've still got some talks from this year's Burning Man lectures uh, that I'd like to get out to you. And I've got my interview with Myron Stoleroff, as well as a, a bunch more from John Hanna's Mind States conferences uh, yet to play. And eventually uh, you'll hear them all, I'm sure. And I'll also be continuing, of course, this trialogue series with the fourth tape in the first series of trialogues. And that tape's titled The World's Soul and the Mushroom. I wonder what that's going to be about. Well, we'll soon see. And before I go, I, I guess I should mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, you can click on the link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webcast page, which may be found at matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. If you still have questions, you can always send them in an email to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. And my thanks as always to Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And thank you, all of you, once again for joining us here in the Salon. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.